worship time, you were covering about four chapters a week of Luke, and so I wasn't going to be overlapping very much. But I, I know that we, we've shortened that to where you're covering about a chapter a week, and, um, and that's good. You will be able to cover much more and learn much more through that. But I know I'm stealing your thunder a little bit, teachers. So let me just encourage you. People have been studying these things for years and haven't quite figured them out. And so overlapping a little bit is not a big deal. It's not a big deal. I hope that uh, you will find more time for discussion about application as we, and, and maybe theological correction during your Sunday school classes as you, as you study these chapters. Um, in case you think that pastors, preachers get excited about every single chapter and every single teaching of the Bible, let me just assure you that that's not true. The chapter we're studying this morning, the chapter we're studying this morning, as you read commentators, they will say is probably the most debated parable in all of Jesus' teachings. It has developed more views than practically any other of Jesus' teaching. In this parable that we're going to study, the the character that begins to be praised is a character who is referred to as a dishonest manager. A manager who wastes his master's possessions. Well, what does that mean? (laughs) What does that mean when Jesus teaches us uh, from this man? He says this is a lesson on discipleship. And look at this dishonest manager. It's very difficult, difficult to understand. And so I, I want to say, and this is a goes towards any Sunday that I preach, but particularly this Sunday, what I'm going to say is not original. Not original. I've been reading the scripture, reading uh, commentaries, and the whole. I know a lot of you would say, well, all you need is the Holy Spirit. Well, I like to say that there's some wisdom that goes along with it too, and that includes reading Christian history and what people have said for 2,000 years since Jesus. So, um, So I've read a lot and listened a lot and tried to figure out what is Jesus saying and what is the most helpful way to present this. As one uh, preacher did say, the plain things are the main things. The plain things are the main things. And so as we study this passage this morning, we will try to be simple. Uh, That doesn't mean we won't try to get into it. We need to get into it and see what Jesus is saying. But we will try to be simple, try to see what those... Those plain things are that Jesus wants to teach us through this dishonest manager. Let me come back to the statement I made. Christian shrewdness is about living life, keeping our end and our purpose in view. Keeping our end and our purpose in view. When I speak of end and what Jesus is really talking in, kind of in the context here is about eternity. Living in sight of eternity. Uh, there's an illustration that I have just... Uh, well, I think I've shared this with you before, but one time I was visiting with someone and sharing the gospel with them and just asking them how they felt about their eternal security, about dying. And they said, well, I have insurance, and so I feel pretty good. You know, my family's going to be taken care of. I, everything's taken care of. He wasn't really keeping his end in view in a very wise way, I wouldn't say. He wasn't being very proactive. Yes, he did a great job of thinking about his family and making sure that they're left with something when he leaves, but he wasn't doing a great job of thinking about what was going to happen to him when he dies and what he was going to face. Yesterday, I was listening to the radio, and they had Anthony Hopkins on on the radio, and uh, he made the statement, whoever God is. Uh, He was making a positive statement that there is a God, but whoever God is. I didn't think that was a very proactive way of trying to find out who God is. 
one day we're just going to find out. Well, once you find out, what's going to happen then? Um, You may not be very happy once you find out if you haven't sought that out. And so, uh, it's Christian shrewdness is about living life, keeping our end, planning for our end for eternity, but also our purpose in view. See, it is about eternity, but it is about this life as well. It is about this life as well. And I think this is one of the main points Jesus is going to make here also. Um, and I, an illustration that I think is helpful is I was reading this last week in, in a Times magazine. It was talking an article about Steve Jobs and his business practices. As you know, he was head of Apple, uh, the Apple company, and uh, died not long ago. But one of the things they said, we're trying to learn, a lot of business schools now are trying to learn what they can from Steve Jobs and all his success and the way that he practiced business. And the one thing they said was that Steve Jobs made the product, the, the product bigger than anything else. It was all about getting a, the highest level of product. Everything that he did, from who he hired, from who he fired, and who he gave raises to, it was all about the product. And they said, they even said that, uh, a lot of you know that Apple is receiving some uh, criticism now for their, some of their business practices and possibly uh, people in China and how they're treated. And they said that Steve Jobs probably would have ignored that and just let it go. You see, the one thing that Steve Jobs was concerned about was the product. He was very shrewd in his business dealings. And what's interesting is that while Jesus doesn't praise this dishonest manager for his dishonesty, He praises him for his shrewdness, for his shrewdness. I wonder if Christians have our purpose in view, single-minded in our purpose, devoting everything to that purpose and to keeping our our end and our purpose in view. Just to... uh, hopefully help you with the word shrewdness. I don't know how many often you people use that word. I don't, I don't use it often, and when I do think about it, I think about it in a negative uh, context. But the word shrewdness is simply wisdom. It's being clever. It's being wise. It's thinking about the future and making decisions in accordance with the future in a very wise manner. Uh, so that should help you as we use this word and as Jesus uses the word throughout the parable. Will you stand with me and we're going to read Luke chapter 16 verses 1 through 13. <clears throat> Notice in the first verse that Jesus has transitioned from speaking to a large group including disciples, tax collectors, sinners and also Pharisees. To hear, it says in the first verse, he also said to the disciples. This is a teaching about discipleship. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. And charges were brought, against, brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what I will do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write eighty. 
the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And then Jesus speaks, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either, either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You may be seated. Father, we pray that you would help us this morning, that you would make plain what you desire to teach us about following you. Lord, what you desire to teach us about eternity and about planning for the future. God, that you would convict our hearts and that you would lead us in obedience and submission to you. It's in your son's name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. I do want to make sure that you uh, open your bulletins and you'll see a folded sheet of paper there with uh, notes. You'll notice that I've left blanks there. As I said, that's because I don't know what I'm going to say there yet. So I'm just kidding. But hopefully those, those will be helpful as we walk through. What we're going to do is first, we're simply going to walk through the story. We're going to make some, some things plain about the story. What is, what is this story about? What point is Jesus trying to make by telling this story? And then we will walk through Jesus' teaching and his commentary on the story in verses 8b, the second part of verse B, verse 8, and then through verse 13. So let's begin by just looking at this story. First we see that there is a rich man who had a manager. Now, this was a rich man, and as we'll see later, it seems that his clients are people who are using his property to grow things. And so they're basically renting from him. This man seems to have owned a lot of property. We'll, we'll talk more about uh, these numbers in just a little bit, but he seemed to have been a very rich man. And so like many of you have encountered today, rich men will often have someone who manages their books. They'll be able to write checks for them. They'll be able to keep their accounts and all those sorts of things. So this rich man has a manager who is keeping his accounts. He is charged with going to these that are renting from him, making sure they pay. He keeps track of how much money he has and all of those things. And what it tells us, what the text tells us is that this rich man had a manager and charges were brought to the rich man that this man was wasting his possessions. Now, when it says wasting his possessions, it's the same word that's used when it speaks of the prodigal son in chapter 15. That the prodigal son took all that his father had given him, his inheritance, and that he went and squandered his property on reckless living. This is what this manager is doing. It, it, there's, no word, there's no dishonesty right here that we're aware of. We don't know. All we know is that he's not using his money wisely. He's not keeping track of things. Maybe he's not keeping up with the books well. Whatever it is, he's not doing a good job. And so this rich man calls him in for a meeting. He calls him in and he says, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. Some of you may have, if you've been fired before, may have had an, an experience like this. You were called into the manager's office, and it, the manager really wasn't interested in what you had to say. 
he asks, you know, what's this I hear about you? But then he goes ahead with what he's decided to do. And so he basically tells him, you need to go get the accounts ready because you're not going to be the manager any longer. You can no longer serve as my manager. And so this is a, a quick conversation. The manager has no opportunity to respond. The master has believed what has been told him, and this man is going to be out of a job. And so the manager says to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? Now, because this rich man had so much property, it's likely that even this manager was doing pretty well financially. We can tell this because of what the text says next. He asks, what, what am I going to do? And he says, I'm not strong enough to dig. Now, it's possible that he's just lazy and he doesn't want to dig. But he says, I'm not strong enough to dig. And he says, I'm ashamed to beg. So this man probably was living a, a decent lifestyle. And he doesn't want to just go to begging. Now, why are these his only options? Well... What happens if his master fires him because of his dishonesty or because of his squandering of the possessions? What's everyone else in the community going to think about him? This isn't a good manager. Who wants to hire a manager of this nature with this reputation? He's not going to get a a good recommendation. And so he's got to figure out what he's going to do. And he says in verse 4, I have decided what to do. So that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. Now what we see here is that he's thinking through this and he wants to ensure that after he's fired, he's got a place to go. He's got a house to live in. Otherwise, he's going to be out on the streets. And so, he says, it says in verse 5, Summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. And so he says to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, write 50. He cuts it in half immediately. This is a, a quick process. He asked him to change it. He probably could have just written on, the, and this uh, debtor could have just written quickly, what, uh, changing it. And so his debt was reduced by 50%. Now, this first debtor, how much he owes, it's equal to the yield of 150 olive trees. 150 olive trees. So this is a a large piece of property that he is using. The amount is equivalent to about three years' salary. And so when he makes this cut for him, this is a lot of money. A lot of money. What this also indicates is even these debtors, while the, the man who owns the property is rich, these people, these debtors are also probably in pretty well. These are men who are using other men to work for them. They probably have people who are working and helping in the production on the, in these fields. And so what is this man doing, this manager? He's ensuring that he's got a place to work. By cutting these debts, he's ensuring that he's got a place to go. Now, the next verse It says that he said to another, now it's probable that he invited many in, many in and cut their debts, but this is just a couple of the examples that Jesus provides. He said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill, write 80. Now notice that the first debt he drops by 50%. This one he simply drops by 20%. It's not that these are unequal people. It's probably the the substance that we're talking about here is the reason. The first is oil, the second is wheat. The second debtor's grain would have been produced on about a hundred acres of land. 100 acres of land. So again, what we're seeing is that these debtors are wealthy men. These are also men who need workers. 
Now, what would the response of these debtors be when this man comes in, this manager, and drops their debts by 50 and 20%? What would their response be? Joy. They're ecstatic. This is great for me. Now, they would also think, they have this manager here, so he's doing a good job of managing the master. He did they, now, know this in the story. These debtors don't know yet that this manager has been fired. Okay, so this guy's just acting fast. He, they don't know. But they see this manager, he's helping them, he's cutting their rates, but behind the manager is the master. And in some sense, they're also thinking, man, this is a great master. He's really helping us out. This master has probably charged this manager to do this. So, there's joy on behalf of these debtors. Well, let's look at the next verse. After he has cut these debtors' debt, it says immediately in verse 8, there's no conversation. Evidently, the manager is bringing the books to the master and to turn them in, and it says the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Now, the dishonesty, this is the first time we see this, but it's probably not talking about what he's just done, but it's probably talking about what he's done all along, his, his um, not dealing well with the money. So what exactly is he commending him for? His shrewdness. Now, in what sense would he, was he shrewd? This man, this manager, has gone and established rapport with all these rich men in the land. These men who could provide for him. So in essence, he's ensured that he'll be able to survive. He's not going to have to go and dig ditches. He's not going to have to beg. But he has been quick. He's been wise. He's been clever, very clever. And he has gone and made sure that he has a a good life to live after this. In some sense, I don't know if any of you have ever had practical jokes played on you. Practical jokes that are really embarrassing. But they're just good. You You know what I'm talking about? And so while it, fr- yeah, yeah I've, seen, I've heard about some of these in the congregation. So while it frustrates you, at the same time, you're like, they got me. That was good. And so that's what's, in a sense, this is what's going on here with this master. He's commending this guy because even though he's a crook, he's a clever crook. He's done himself very well here. Now, wouldn't the ma- master, couldn't he just go to these clients and say, look, that wasn't, that wasn't right. You actually owe me that former amount. No. His clients are ecstatic now. They think he is the best master ever. And so the master can't just go to his clients and say, that was, that was all wrong. Actually, you need to go ahead and give me that full amount. That's not true. He couldn't do that. Some commentators have suggested that, it's, that this manager, he could have been put in jail from the beginning, and so maybe this master is supposed to be pictured in the story as very benevolent and somewhat gracious that he just fires the guy and doesn't get him thrown in jail. And so in this case, maybe the manager is really throwing everything he has. He's depending on the graciousness of this manager, this master. Some have suggested that. It's possible. I, I'm not sure. We don't have anything that tells us that plainly. All we know is that this master commends this manager because he has acted quickly and he has acted wisely for himself. Now, 
What is it that Jesus would have to praise about this? What, how does this apply to discipleship? All of you, you need to learn to be more tricky, right? Let's look at 8b. It seems like the parable probably ends in 8a. This is the story that Jesus is telling. But after that first portion of verse 8, Jesus transitions into a sense of, of commentary on this story and giving teaching to the disciples on this story. So let's look at what Jesus has to say here. In the second portion of eight, verse 8, it says... For the sons of this world are more shrewd, in other words, they're more wise, they're more clever in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Let's read that again just to make sure it's, it's clear. The, the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. What is Jesus saying? He's saying that the people in the world devote all their energy, every bit of resources they have, to making sure that they survive in this world. And not only that they survive, but that they thrive. Companies invest millions of dollars in research so that they know how to get you. So that you buy their stuff. Jesus is saying that the world is very wise. They're very crafty in making sure that they survive. And they are more crafty than the people of God are in planning for their future. And executing. And investing. So, is this a criticism? No. No. You see, sometimes God's people tend to be passive in their planning. For this world, they think it doesn't matter. We're going to be in eternity. What's it it matter? They don't learn all the skills they can. They aren't intentional with their finances. They don't learn budgeting, etc. All these things. Now, why does this matter? Why does this matter? And I believe that verse 9 will make this clear. He says in verse 9, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. Now, when he says unrighteous wealth, this is just a way of saying worldly means. Make friends for yourselves by means of stuff. Money, whatever resources you may have access to. So that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now, that's clear as mud, right? No. You see, Christians are called to do good with their money, with all their resources. And when you don't plan, when you aren't shrewd, it limits the amount of good that you are capable of doing. And so when you're foolish, when you don't plan, it limits what you're able to do for God's glory, for God's name. So Christians are called to shrewdness, cleverness, so that we can do good, more good. Now, this doesn't mean we take whatever chance we can to get ahead or to hurt people in the process. That's not what this means. But it does mean that a passive approach to stuff is not Christian. See, by being passive is how we be foolish and how we limit ourselves in the amount of good that we're able to do for God's name. I think the clearest verse on this is Matthew 10, 16, which says, you've, you've heard it, I'm sending you out like sheep surrounded by wolves, so 
be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Jesus, there are other things said about this. The devil is like a roaring lion seeking to devour you. What Jesus is saying, what Peter says when he says that, is the world is dangerous and it's smart. It knows how to get you. And so while you should be innocent, Christians, you should be wise. You should be wise. God's sovereignty is not an excuse for your ignorance. You are called to learn. You are called to be wise people, to make good, wise decisions, to take every opportunity you have to learn and to grow. And so, I wonder, I wonder how you, believer, are using all your resources, your gifts, your abilities, whether business sense, a love for books, a love for sports, whatever it is, for God's kingdom. Jesus, what Jesus is saying is we're, we're to take all our intellectual energy, our emotional energy, our smarts, whatever we have, and, and funnel that towards God's kingdom, working for God's kingdom, planning for eternity, but also not just for us, but for other people. But for other people. So, the sons of this world are more shrewd. They'll do whatever necessary to survive. They're more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. God's people tend to be passive. They tend to not plan well. They tend to not be very clever, very quick. So Jesus is praising a dishonest man for his shrewdness, for his quickness, for his willingness to do whatever it takes, to go to whatever extreme necessary to survive. And I wonder, believer... Will you use every resource available to you in this world so that you might plan for eternity? Not just for you, but for all people. Now as we get into verse 9, again, eight, the second half of verses 8 through 13 are a new section. Now we'll call this section, it's labeled in your notes, Wisdom for Future Success. This is where Jesus gives us commentary, more commentary and some... Uh, teaching on this subject. The first thing that we'll look at here in verse 9 is be generous. What do we do with our stuff? What do we do with our resources? How are we to be clever with our resources, with what God gives us? First, we are to be generous. Be generous. I think that's a blank there in your notes. We're to be generous. Jesus says in verse 9, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Make friends for yourselves. Let's talk about this first. Money is to be something not that divides us from other people, but that brings us together, something that brings us near to others through generosity and benevolence, etc. You see, money tends in our society to create, create boundaries. We have the divisions of the rich class, the middle class, and the poor. We have the elite, the powerful, and then the rest. But the teaching here is that money is not to create boundaries for Christians. Money should bring us near to others as we give, as we're generous. The next thing Jesus says after making friends is, so that when it fails... So that when it fails. Now, 
Here's something we can be assured of. Money will fail us. In a world where money means power and money means access to everything, we need to meditate often on the fact that money will mean nothing when we die. It won't count for anything in the afterlife. You see, the currency in God's kingdom is grace. And it's only exchanged through Christ. Money means nothing in the kingdom. It will fail. Just meditate on this. Money gives, we feel like it gives us everything. It provides for our needs, our food, our shelter, everything. But listen, remember, money means nothing. It's temporary. It will fail you. And so the point Jesus made, when it fails, these that you have made, it says they may receive you into the eternal, eternal dwellings. Now what does this mean? Who is they? Well, it says make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, just meaning stuff, worldly things, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now, this is... Complicated. What, who is they that's receiving us into the eternal dwellings? Well, some, some suggest that this is a type of reference to God. In the prodigal son, you'll remember that the son said he sinned against heaven. And he really, it, it, it's a reference to God. And so they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Some may suggest that this is really just a reference to God. It, it, it might be, I'm not sure here. But even if Jesus is in some sense referring to these that we've made friendships with through through wealth, through worldly wealth. Consider if you give your money to provide for a Bible translation for a people group. A people group who've never ha- who has never had God's word in their language. They've never heard the name Jesus. They've never understood the salvation. And you give to provide for them so that they might hear God's word. Can you imagine when you get to heaven and these people who had never heard God's word are there And in a sense, there's rejoicing and they're welcoming you because you made friends by means of worldly wealth. I think that this makes some sense considering that one of the coming parables is the story of rich man and Lazarus. And the opposite thing happens. In that parable, we're not going to get into it, but I just want to give you the general sense the, rich, the, the poor man, Lazarus, is sitting outside the rich man's gates day after day. The rich man is sitting in his, you know, he's in the house. He's enjoying everything he has, all of his wealth. And then the story goes to when both men die. Both are buried, but the poor man is with Abraham in God's kingdom. He is in heaven. And the rich man is in hell. You see, what Jesus is telling his people to do is make friends for yourselves with worldly wealth so that they will be there to welcome you into the kingdom, into the eternal dwellings. The opposite has happened with the rich man and Lazarus. He did not make friends with worldly wealth. He did not help provide for Lazarus in any way. And Lazarus did not welcome him into the eternal dwellings. And so in some sense here, as we give, as we're generous, we're establishing relationships with people. We're wiping away those things that often separate us of a socioeconomic level, whatever it may be. And we're becoming friends with all people. And we will dwell with them in heaven, in God's kingdom, forever. 
I want to read to you from chapter, uh, Luke chapter 6, verses 32 through 35. And as one pastor reminded in teaching on this passage, we, we often want to be very clear that salvation is by grace. And this is, this is very true. Salvation is by grace. In doing these things, we're not earning ourselves a place in heaven. This is not works-based, but it's fruit-based. It's fruit-based. This is the fruit of believing. But as much as we want to emphasize that salvation is by grace, we do want to remember that God has rewards in store. Listen to Luke chapter 6, verses 32 through 35. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to be repaid, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners so that they may be repaid in full. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. This is such an interesting and and, and contradictory in some way passage. We lend on earth expecting expecting nothing in return, but in the kingdom we're rewarded by God Himself. And so, this is not works-based salvation, but Jesus is telling us, make friends for yourselves, be wise, be generous with your earthly wealth. The second main point Jesus makes here in Wisdom for future success in this section is be faithful in stewardship. Stewardship. Being a steward is having been entrusted with something that's not ours. This is what this manager was doing. He was entrusted with the master's wealth to keep track of it. So we are to be faithful in all our stewardship. Verse 10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. I wonder if we are faithful in the things that seem very insignificant. You see, there's a correlation between how we deal with small things and how we will deal with the big things in life. Small things. Uh, One pastor gave the example that uh, punctuality shows respect. I know there are some things who think that being late is not a big deal. I didn't say this, so you take that how you like. But punctuality, a small, what seems like a small thing, can show respect, a great thing. It shows something of a hard work ethic. Honesty, even in small things, shows reliability. It shows care for others. If you're t- willing to tell a little white lie... You're not far down the road from being willing to tell a big lie. And so don't act like it's innocent. It's not. Consistency in small things, a devotional life, exercise, it shows devotion and persistence over a period of time. And and I think the great example here is the biblical character Joseph. Biblical character Joseph. If you look in Genesis and read the story of Joseph, Joseph was sold into slavery by his own brothers. He went to Egypt where he was to be in slavery and he was uh, to be a worker in Potiphar, a powerful man's house in, in Egypt. 
But while he was there, this man's wife began to tempt him and encourage him to uh, do some things with her, some things that not have, would not have been very ethical. But Joseph was persistent in saying no. To the extent that one day she begins to tug on him and pull him and try to force him, but Joseph leaves his shirt in her hand and he runs away. Joseph was faithful, a faithful man. After that, he's in prison for a couple years because Potiphar finds him and and imprisons him. Now remember, Joseph has been innocent. He has every excuse to be frustrated, angry, and some of us would say just to act in whatever way he wants. This is a great injustice. I can do whatever I want. But Joseph does not. He continues to be faithful. He earns a good reputation in the prison. And he becomes a man of great respect over time. Eventually, Joseph would be released. He would serve in the Pharaoh's house. He would serve over great things for Pharaoh. And the incredible thing is that eventually the people of Israel, as they travel to the land of Egypt, are given a land, a piece of land in the nation, in the area of Egypt. And so Joseph, an example of faithfulness over a period of time, even when he's done injustice, and he's eventually given wealth. He's given his own stuff. It's interesting because of verse 12, if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Verses 11 through 12, as we move along in the stewardship, The greater correlation Jesus is making here is between worldly wealth and spiritual wealth. Why would God give you spiritual wealth when you've shown yourself unwise and unfaithful in worldly wealth? I think it's a great question to ask whether, are you feeling a a lull in your spiritual life? Well, are you being faithful in your material life? You see, all these things are connected. Faithfulness to God in one area affects your your relationship with Him in another area. And so are you being faithful in every stewardship that you've been given? And I believe strongly, I think this is what this text is telling us, the greatest source of our unfaithfulness is our lack of understanding that what we have is not really ours. You see, if you believe your money is your own, you'll spend it how you want to. If you believe that, well, well, it's just a dollar, it's mine, you know, I've worked hard for it, you'll spend it how you want to. But when you realize that the body that you have is made by God and given to you for a period, for a season, when you realize that the money you make is given to you by God through the resources, the abilities He's given you, when you realize the talents that you have, ability whether to play music or to draw or, or, or what to work hard, whatever that may be, those are stewardships that God has given you for His glory, not for your own. And so the greatest source of our unfaithfulness, of our failure, is not realizing that what we have isn't really ours. Even that dollar. I don't want us to be legalistic here. But, would you spend it differently if you thought about that? Your ears and the things that come into them. Would you process things differently if you knew that came to you from God? That was a stewardship. Your heart. The way that you love. Your relationships. All of these things. 
our borrowed resources. They come from God. Now the last point, the last point here, serve God, not mammon. Verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Mammon is a a word that is used here from the Greek, and um, it, it just means stuff. It means, again, these worldly resources. Let me say, money is a great tool. It's a great tool, but it's a horrible master. It is a great tool, but it's a horrible master. Now, the church in history, and I want to just make two points here, has looked at money in two different ways. And there are some blanks here. The prosperity gospel and the poverty gospel. The prosperity gospel and the poverty gospel. These are two extremes, ways that the church has looked at money. The prosperity gospel is very popular today. A lot of you are familiar with it. This is what the Pharisees believed. That those who were blessed by God had lots of money. That to be blessed meant you had money. You see, Abraham, even in his time, was blessed with worldly wealth, with herds and everything that stood for for, uh, resources in that day. And so the prosperity gospel has taken that to an extreme and said, well, if God's going to bless, that means he's going to give us lots of money. That is the prosperity gospel. And it's a false gospel. To be blessed may mean that you're like Job. To be blessed may be to endure great difficulty. It's not always worldly prosperity. But there is also the poverty gospel. Those who teach the poverty gospel will do appeal to to the story like the rich young ruler. When he says, God, Jesus, what must I do to be with you, to follow you? And Jesus says, you must go and sell all that you have. Sell all that you have and give it to the poor. St. Francis of Assisi, this is one story that he read and immediately decided he was a rich, he came from wealth, and uh, he decided he needed to go sell everything he had. Both these extremes have been taken. Some have said that if God is to bless, he's to give worldly wealth. Others have said if you want to follow Jesus, you have to give away everything. Everything. This is... Neither of these is what Jesus is teaching. Jesus teaches a different view that says worldly wealth is not necessarily bad in itself unless it's used for evil purposes. But when used for good, it is great. When used wisely, shrewdly, it is good. Listen to 1 Timothy 6, 17-19. These verses are in your notes. This is the teaching that Paul says that Timothy is to give those who are rich. Command those who are rich in this world's goods not to be haughty or to set their their hope on riches, which are uncertain, but on God who richly provides us with all things for our enjoyment. Tell them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous givers, sharing with others. And this way they will save up a treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the future and so lay hold of what is truly life. In this teaching, Paul does not say that those who are rich must give away everything they have and become poor in order to enter the kingdom of God. That's not the gospel. But worldly wealth is to be used to serve God for His glory. Now, 
How does this go with the parable? The parable serves as an example where a man tried to serve a master and money and found that it couldn't work, right? He squandered the resources. When he realized he was in a fix, he did everything he could to rescue himself. And so, what is the teaching for us today? Well, we are to be generous. We are to be faithful in all our stewardship. We are to serve God, not mammon, not money, not stuff. I want to give you a couple of application questions. And I hope these are things you can discuss in your classes next week when you study this this text. Where do you find passivity in your life? Are there areas in your life where you have just been passive and you've said, well, God will work it out. He's sovereign. You see, Jesus is not advocating passivity. He's advocating wisdom, the use of wisdom in the life of the believer. Also, where are you leaning on God's sovereignty as a crutch and as an excuse for your irresponsibility? Now, you will not hear me say this often. I love to teach on God's sovereignty. And I love that God is sovereign. But God's sovereignty has been blamed for a lot of ignorance on the part of man and a lot of bad decisions. And so don't use it as a crutch. He has called us to wisdom. Now, wisdom takes hard work. It takes discernment. Which takes prayer, it takes being surrounded by the body in which other people can give a collective sense of wisdom. They can tell you about things that you've never experienced. They can help you in circumstances and in choices you're facing that you've never had to face before, but they have. This is why we advocate so much intergenerational ministry. The need for older people to invest in the younger so that the younger don't make the same mistakes that the older people did. We need the wisdom. We need to be known by one another. So, money is a great tool, but it's a horrible master. And let me close with this. The only way we know how to use God's resources in the way that He has designed is if we know God. So Christian, through the Holy Spirit, you have given the power, you have been given the discernment and the wisdom to lead a self-controlled and godly life so that you can use God's resources in the way that He has designed you to use them. So you don't have to live by the prosperity gospel nor the poverty gospel, but you can live by the gospel of generosity that worldly resources are to be used for good and for His kingdom. You with business sense who know, you know how to make money. We need you in the church and we need you to funnel that resource towards God's glory and His kingdom. Those who are not believers. You're never going to know or be able to use God's resources in the way He has designed them to be used. You will always find yourself struggling with the worship of the things that are not God and never supposed to be God in your life. And they will destroy you. They will destroy you. And so, the gospel of grace teaches us to live in the way that God has designed 
Christ died so that our slavery to sin might be removed and so we might walk in new life through the power of the Holy Spirit. Christian, are you walking in that power of the Holy Spirit in every aspect of your life? Where are you being passive? That's the question you need to answer. Repent of and then walk in obedience. And then unbeliever, will you fall before God? the author and creator of all things, of your own life. He will give you salvation. He will give you grace and kindness. We're going to sing together in a moment. I'll invite you to stand. And let's pray.